All right, you can be seated, and we will turn to the Word of God now and to uh, the catechism that we're studying as well. Uh, we're continuing that series with come to the Tenth Commandment now, and so we will begin as we have in the last couple of weeks with confessing our answers to the questions 79, 80, and 81, all of them having to do with the Tenth Commandment. Question 79, which is the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his maid servant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Question 80. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requireth full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. <clears throat> what is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, in all inordinate motions and affections toward anything that is his. In our introductory message on this commandment, I pointed out to you that this commandment is unique because although all the commandments ought to be applied to our hearts, the 10th commandment is the one that speaks directly and expressly to our heart. It addresses our heart directly. Ever since sin entered into the world, it has been our tendency to avoid the reality that God not only weighs our actions, but also our heart. We want to think that we're okay, that his jurisdiction doesn't go to the heart. The Tenth Commandment stands as a testimony against that notion and assures us that he is concerned about the heart and its desires. In Romans 7, Paul tells us that this is the commandment that brought him down from his self-righteous, pharisaical pride that he had as one who kept the law of God. And then he realized that the law said, you shall not covet. And that, that he knew it said that, but that came home to him in a way that really brought conviction to him. He might have a rigorous outward conformity to the commandments, But when he remembered that covetousness was prohibited, he was smitten with true guilt and the reality that he needed a savior just like everybody else. But even though covetousness is a sin in the heart, it rarely stays contained in the heart. So last week I showed you how covetous desires bring us into quarrels with other people. Because if we're coveting something and they're coveting the same thing, then uh, we're going to get in a fight about it. And, you know, I gave you an illustration where even if it's something that is maybe kind of understandable that you would desire, like you want to, you've had really hard day, you had a really hard day and you want to receive comfort from your spouse and for them to understand and all of these things. And uh, it turns out that they're looking for the very same thing because they also had a very hard day. And when you meet, there's likely to be friction <laughs> because you're both looking for something that uh, you, someone will have to yield, or if both of you do, it's even better. This week, I want to show you how covetousness misdirects our whole lives 
and how it produces sinful worry in us. If you think about it, if your desires are off, you're going to follow your desires, and so your whole life is going to be moving in the wrong direction. You're going to be going out to the wrong things. That's terrible. Like if, you know, if somebody, if, if they got wrong directions, they can be driving really hard, but they're going away from where they need to be going. And so it's a, t- a terrible mess. And then uh, also the other th- part of it is that covetousness um, causes worry. Because w- if we're all anxious about the things of this world and what we have that can be lost and destroyed so easily, we're, we're never going to be, we're always going to be worried about everything. But if we're resting in the fact that we're God's children, we have eternal life, we have his kingdom, nobody can, nobody can disturb those things. It's, they're, they're subtle. We don't, we don't have anything to worry about. So our scripture reading related to this is one f- words from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Matthew 6, 19 through 34. This is, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. So listen carefully as I read it to you. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There we end the reading of God's word. May he bless it. <clears throat> this passage <clears throat> is part of that great sermon that Jesus preached that we call the Sermon on the Mount because it was preached on a mountain. The sermon is given to us in the Bible as an example of the things that Jesus preached when he went all over Galilee. So as a model sermon like that, it is really showing us the themes that he would have often taught on. We know that this is true because in Luke, we have the Sermon on the Plain. It was preached in a different place, and it has some very much overlapping things. Some people think that it's a bad, um, a bad writing of the, the, the two sermons that Luke and Matthew you know, got some things kind of mixed up, and that's why they're different. 
But no, it's a different, different sermons, but he preached similar sermons in different places that he went because these were important things that his people needed to, to know about as he went around Galilee. And from the part of the sermon that we just read, we see that one subject that he addressed at length was covetousness and the worry that it produces. This was not an unimportant subject. Let's dig in then to this with eagerness so that we can receive help in expunging covetousness that is in all of us in various ways. Remember that Jesus not only speaks to us about it when we trust in him, he also, gives, he also gives us the Holy Spirit to work in us. So yes, he, um, he, he tells us uh, what we, how we need to change. But if we have the Spirit, he enables us to change. Sometimes we think, oh, I can't change. This is just part of who I am. I'm just a worrier, we'll say, or something like that. But no, that's not so. He changes us from the roots, from the inside out. Jesus began here in this discourse with a very simple command. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. What is Jesus talking about here? He is talking about those who spend their days getting stuff in this world. They have a huge appetite for the treasures of this world, gold, technology, clothes, art, maybe other kind of things like friends and entertainment, sports, you know, you name it. It's not that it's wrong for us to have and enjoy nice things. I preached a whole sermon to you about that when we did the Eighth Commandment. We, we uh, talked about how God gives us all things richly to enjoy. First uh, Timothy, Timothy 4, 4 and 5, where it says, For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. God said expressly in Deuteronomy 8 that he'd given his people all those things that we read about. So what does it mean then when it says that these things are good for us if, we, if they're sanctified by the word of God in prayer? I just refresh you about that. It means that it is something that God's word allows you to have and that you have also received it in answer to prayer. That it is sanctified by the word means that you obtained it by obedience to his word. In other words, you didn't obtain it by theft or by cheating or by working on the Lord's day. Not with money that should have been given as a tithe. If you buy some property or something like that and you used money that God hadn't given you to use for that purpose because it was, it was money that should have been tithed, then the property that you have, you don't have according to the word of God. You have it contrary to the word of God. And uh, not through neglect of your duties. That uh, you don't neglect, say, duties to your family in order to get more, 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 more stuff. And then you've got this big pile. You didn't get it according to the word of God because you neglected your family in order to get that. It also refers to something that you got where the thing that you got was not according to the word of God. Like you decide to buy an an image of the Virgin Mary to put in your garden so that you could pray to it. Well, you shouldn't have bought that. (laughs) You didn't get that. It's not sanctified by the word. It's not something that God authorized you to have. 
And then sanctified by prayer, what does that mean? Sanctified by prayer does not necessarily mean that you prayed for it specifically. You know, like you have a bag of potato chips and you say, oh, I don't think I prayed for this bag of potato chips. You know, before I go, it, that's, we're not talking about some kind of weird thing like that. But it means it came about from a heartfelt, you, you have all your stuff from a heart, heartfelt desire to, to please God with your wealth, asking him to give you your daily bread and trusting him like it talks about in Deuteronomy, you know, that you don't get it by your own resources, but you, you're trusting in him, you're leaning on him to provide you with everything you have and to give you what he deems best, that it, your prayer is, Lord, give me what is right for me to have, not more, not less. You pray that sincerely, then you have what you have by the word and prayer is sanctified by the word and prayer. So it's, it's good. You can rejoice in it. You can enjoy it. You, you've put the matter in his hands instead of demanding this and demanding that without putting it all in God's hands. See, that's what we do when we're covetous. We go beyond the bounds that God has set. We use tithe money to buy something. We, we uh, cheat in order to get something, that sort of thing. Jesus is also talking about laying up treasures on earth when you ought to be doing something else, laying up treasures in heaven, which is what he puts in contrast to it. There are people who are so consumed with the things of this world that they will neglect prayer and worship and reading God's word. They can't even set aside the Lord's day, one day in seven for the Lord's, or or they can't set aside time for daily prayers. They feel that they must have the things of this world instead. And of course, such a person, they, could, they certainly cannot tithe. I mean, that would be unthinkable. They couldn't afford it. And it would take away from the treasures that they're storing up for themselves on earth. And that's completely out of the question for them. Or observing the Lord say, you know, that would, be, that, that would ruin what they're, what, they're, what they're trying to do. They wouldn't be able to get what they were trying to get. What are these treasures in heaven, though? What is that talking about? Well, a big part of it is laying up rewards. Yeah, you heard it right, rewards. If you look at what Jesus says in the first part of Matthew 6, we didn't read the first part, but you'll see that Jesus had been talking about rewards in heaven there. He says that you will have a great reward in heaven if you pray and fast and give alms to the poor, if you do that in the way that pleases him. You're investing for heaven instead of for the earth. Don't set yourself up as someone who is above looking for rewards. Because he said if you do those things in the wrong way, if you're looking for honor from men, then in sounding the trumpet and all that kind of stuff, if you do those things in the wrong way, then um, you, you won't have a reward in heaven. And so you should want a reward in heaven. Don't set yourself up with this as someone who is above looking for rewards. Jesus is not above giving us rewards, nor is he above appealing to us on the basis of receiving rewards or losing rewards. So don't put yourself above Jesus and his wisdom. He gives us instruction about rewards because we need, or he gives us rewards and instruction about rewards because we need it. So when he speaks of treasures in heaven, He's in part speaking of rewards in heaven. Now, we come to say, what are those rewards? What are those treasures? Well, 
Laying up treasures in heaven means that you're building your relationship with God and cultivating a holy character. That relationship that you build with God on earth and that holy character that you develop by his grace, those are things that you will have for eternity. See, that's very, very important. You need to grow in your love for God and your delight in his glory and your sense of his beauty and holiness and goodness and faithfulness. You need to become more and more like Jesus while you're here in this world. And what you cultivate here, you will have for all eternity. In his parables, Jesus speaks of this present world as a field where you grow a harvest for eternity. Your opportunity for growing those things is here and now. He portrays the judgment at the last day as the harvest when all the fruits are gathered into heaven. And whatever fruits you have in that day will be yours for eternity. That's why it's so important now to lay up treasure for then. You will, have a, you will not have a chance to live this life again. So if you live for frivolous things here, you will lose all that you live for. But if you live for the glory of God in his kingdom and growth in his grace and so on, you will have reward in heaven with that. This is why Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in, all, in holy conduct and godliness? Jesus is showing us the obvious here. How foolish it is to lay up treasure on earth that will be lost, that will not last. Moths will destroy your fine clothing. Thieves will steal your gold and your jewels. And rust will eat away at your cars. We are fools if we forget that this present world is a perishing world. It is groaning under the curse. And we ourselves are all appointed to die. You need to get an eternal perspective. The only thing that is lasting is the treasure that we lay up in heaven. The relationship we cultivate with the Lord and the holiness that by his grace we grow up into. The word of God, his promises and grace will endure forever and nothing will be able to destroy these. Why would you then invest in what is going to perish when you can invest in what is to be enjoyed forever? What difference will it really make in a million years that you had a huge and beautiful house or that you made a big pile with your investments? It's time to start living with an eternal perspective. In verse 21, Jesus reminds us that whatever we have laid up, or that wherever we have laid up our treasure, that's where our heart will be. Isn't that true? Think about it. If you have, say, you've got two investments, and you put a large sum of money in one of them and a small sum in the other, which one will you be concerned about? Your heart will be with the one that you put the most treasure in, won't it? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's the one you're going to be watching, not the one we don't have very much. Likewise, if you pour your energies into building a business, your heart will be in that business. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing in that sense, 
but you want to have, you, you can do your business for the glory of God. We're going to talk about that later. But if you spend countless hours with uh, these things to, in ignoring the kingdom of God, then it is a bad thing. If you spend countless hours doing something else, like making yourself beautiful or something like that, that's where your heart goes, where you're investing, where your treasure is. Your, your heart will be also, that's what your heart will be set on. It, it, it really becomes, it grows, you see, like, uh, you could say like a cancer. What you sow, you reap. It could be like something good that grows, like fruit. If you invest your time in pornography, that's where your heart goes. Your heart gets more and more deeply committed to that. You sow to the flesh and you reap corruption. And you want more and more and more because you've invested your time and energy there. That's where your heart is. That's what you think about. That's what you're going after. But if you invest in your walk with God, if you spend time seeking to know God and walk with him like Enoch did, if you walk with the Lord, that's where your heart will be. And that's where your concern will be. Your concern will be in your walk with God. What we saw before about covetousness is true, that it begins in the heart. You do sinful things because your heart desires or treasures those things. But at the same time, when you feed those desires, what I'm saying now, your heart then will desire them or treasure them even more. That's the way it works, doesn't it? Anything that you give yourself to, you say, oh, I'm going to you know, I'm gonna do this thing and I'm just going to do it a little bit. And then you do it a bit. And you know, oh, wow, this is really good. And then you do a little bit more and 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 a little bit more. And it keeps on going. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does all this mean? Jesus says, the next thing he says is that you need to have good eyes. You need to have a good eye. It's the second thing I want to point out to you that Jesus says here. In verse 22, he says that the lamp of your whole body is your eye. Your eye is the organ of perception. You know how we will speak of someone having an eye for something. For example, to say that a man has, talking about investments, that he has a good eye, an eye for good stocks, you mean that he has the ability to perceive, perceive which one will do well and which ones won't. If someone has an eye for watermelons, you mean that they can pick out a tasty watermelon. Somebody else, it's just a random, you just, they all look the same. You grab one, you take it, and you hope it's good when you cut it open. But a person that has an eye for it can tell a good melon from a bad melon. Jesus is talking about having an eye to distinguish what is valuable and from what is not. Think of how huge this is. Just think about how important this is. Jesus says, verse 23, if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Can you see why that is? You will go completely wrong because if your eye is bad, then you're going to devote your whole body to things that you think are important that are actually worthless. Things that you don't think are worthless. Your whole life will be poured out on vanity, what Ecclesiastes calls vanity, like a, a vapor, the breath that you breathe out, that just about, you're, you're, you're all focused on that vapor, and you're pouring everything into that vapor. It's just going to be gone. You will be like a blind man feeling around in his garden for vegetables who grabs a snake because he can't see what's there. 
But Jesus says if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. You will have a knack for seeing what is important, for distinguishing what matters from what doesn't matter. Your mind, your affections, your desires, your choices, your actions will be full of light. Everything, if the eye is right, then everything will be full of light. Everything about you. Everything about you will be devoted to what is best. Your perception of what is important determines what you do. If your perception is off, everything is off. Just think how dark that darkness is when a person spends their whole life laying up what they cannot keep and completely ignores what is eternal. You can't get any darker than that, really. Is it any wonder that Paul often prays that believers will have discernment? Notice that in his epistles. He often asks for that, that we can distinguish good from bad. Because it's going to waste all, all of our energies on stupid pursuits. Jesus makes it plain in verse 24 that you cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, he says, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Mammon refers to riches, things of this world. Think of it this way. You can't work for two masters at the same time, can you? Suppose you're a carpenter and you take a job with two companies. One company is building an office building in Dartmouth and the other is building a house in Clayton Park. And they both want you to work from 7 to 5, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's not going to work, is it? (laughs) You can't serve them both. You can't possibly work as a carpenter at both locations at the same time. You have to choose between one and the other. Of course, if they have different hours, it would be possible to, might be possible to work for both of them. But the point that Jesus is making is that you can't serve them both at the same time. You have to serve one or the other. Your loyalty will be obvious by where you show up to work and which company you take your assignment, your work assignments from. You'll say to me, but what about somebody like godly Job? Didn't Job serve both God and riches and get on well doing that? Why, why can't I also do that? Or what about a godly man like the Roman centurion that, who came to Jesus with Cornelius and all that? Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Did, um, did he not serve as a high-ranking officer in the Roman armies? Yet we're also told that his prayers and alms pleased the Lord in heaven. So didn't he have two masters that he was serving that way? How could they serve both God and mammon when Jesus says it's impossible to do that? How could Job and and the centurion do this? Wouldn't they need to give all their riches and positions up and go off to the desert like a hermit if they were going to completely serve God and not the things of this world? Or maybe they could go into missions or something. That, maybe that would be better than being a hermit. They could, they could go and do missions you know, and sacrifice themselves. Shouldn't they sell everything and forget about riches so they can devote themselves only to God if they really want to have the most treasure in heaven? It's a good question, but here's the answer. Job or the Roman centurion, Cornelius, did not serve two masters. The excellent thing about them was that they were both devoted to the Lord only. They understood that the Lord has called us to subdue the earth and to take dominion over it. So we have callings 
that we fulfill for God in this world. But the difference is they did their calling for the glory of God rather than asking God to bless their calling that was not done for him. They recognized that their calling in this world was part of their service to God. So they did their work for God with thanksgiving for all of his gifts, what Deuteronomy says to do when you have a lot. You might say that they did not turn it around backwards as some people do. They were not serving God only that they might get him to give them the treasures where their heart was set of this world. They were not praying merely for riches and success. Like we talked about that in James recently. I can pray and pray and pray and pray and say, I pray all the time about this. And uh, yeah, but you're, you're praying with the wrong motive. Like you're praying not that you'll have this for the glory of God, but just to fulfill your covetous desires. No, these men pray that they might know the living God and please him. Their concern was that his kingdom would come, not that their worldly desires would be satisfied. You have to have the Lord, not mammon, as your master, you see. What does that look like in practical terms? Let's think about these guys. It means that when Job had everything taken away, he still clung to God because God was his master. It means that in the days when he prospered, he gave thanks to God for the abundance of his riches. And he used his riches in ways that honor God. He tithed and gave to the poor, and he gave thanks. Everything he did was aimed at honoring the Lord and pleasing the Lord. Job had discernment. God said that he was a blameless man. There was no one like him. He could see clearly what pleased his Lord, and that's what he lived for. It means that he was generous with his servants. Yeah, he had a lot, but he was generous with his servants and truly cared for them. It means that he instructed them and insisted that they would deal fairly with and justly with all of his business pursuits that he sent them on. He did all of his business to the glory of God. It was for God and it was done in God's ways. This is an absolutely beautiful thing to behold. And sadly, it's a very rare thing to find in the world. In fact, it's harder to be a rich man who truly lives for the glory of God than it is to be a poor man who does. And with the centurion... God was his master instead of his career. We see him in Acts 10 described as a man whose prayers and alms had pleased God. That's how I know that what I just said is true. He was seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness. He, that, that was what his whole life was about. He was a soldier, yes indeed, but he served as a soldier for the glory of God. He would have been a leader that his men respected because Although firm in discipline, he was a man of integrity who truly cared about all of them. He gave them counsel about their marriages, and he instructed them in military procedures. He was honest and just in all his dealings. Again, he was a man whose heart was devoted to the Lord and who brought glory to God by the way that he carried out his duties as a Roman centurion, a very rare jewel. Now, if we think about how can we say that about him, because you remember what he did when Peter was coming to see him and he received the vision, he got all of his servants to come and be there as well and his relatives, because this man was concerned about God and his kingdom. 
there are certain tests that come along that show you who your master is. There are times when you have a big contract that, you, that could turn your career around. It comes your way. It's an opportunity. But you would have to cut a few corners that you know in your conscience would be wrong for you to cut. Be a little bit of truth stretching, a little bit of deception, just, just a little bit on the other side. Not much, but a little bit on the other side of the boundary. Who is your master then? if you choose to go with that contract, God or mammon. The moment of truth has come. God your master? Or is your career your master? There are times when the big tennis tournament is on Sunday. You've been doing very well. Maybe you don't play tennis on Sunday. You make it a point. You never, oh, I don't play tennis on Sunday. But now, it's a big tournament. It's on Sunday. What are you going to do? You say, oh, well, this is just an exception because the turn- it's a tournament. Now you show if tennis is your master or if the Lord is your master when the rubber meets the road. Are you, are you to play tennis for the glory of God or is God's only purpose to help you win tennis matches? You know, the athlete, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that mean that you can give up football if it interferes with the Lord's day? Or does that mean you can win football games that you play on the Lord's Day? Is God your master except when it's the nationals? You can't serve two masters. The longer I live, the more I realize that it is in these things that you really show who you're living for. As soon as you move toward doing something for mammon instead of for God, then you start going down that trajectory and you say, oh, well, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. You, you still got bound. But you see, you can't say, well, God says this, but I'm going to move the boundary over here because I think the boundary is a little too strict. You've just put yourself in the place of God because your eye is on the thing that you're pursuing in the world rather than on serving God. It's on your success in the world. So do you covet your relationship with God? Do you use coveting that way? Remember, it can be used that way. Or do you covet your riches and success in the world? So what is the condition of your eye? Okay, that's what we were just talking about. Do you see what matters? Or is your whole body full of darkness? And then Jesus turns to the sin of worry. Most people don't think of, a worry, of worry as a sin. But Jesus does think of it that way. People look at it more like a sickness. Part of the reason for this may be because people feel themselves to be unable to keep themselves from worry. But really, is it any different than the other sins that people fall into, such as angry outbursts? Do they say, oh, well, you know, I could totally control this. No, (laughs) they go out of control. It's the same thing. Or lying. Or drunkenness. I can't help it, they say. Or sexual immorality. I'm just drawn to this. Of course, increasingly, there's a tendency in our day to look at those things as sicknesses too. But for a long time, we've allowed worry to be a sickness. That's where some of it got started. We want to classify all of these things as the same as cancer or heart disease. But the Lord doesn't classify them that way in his word. You do not need to feel ashamed or repent if you have cancer. 
but you need to repent of worry or drunkenness. Very few Christians take worry seriously. Jay Adams once asked a group of Christians at a conference to raise their hand if they had a struggle with worry. And lots of people, they're smiling. Yeah, that's me, I worry. Yeah, I worry all the time. They're like that. And then he asked them, okay, uh, how many of you have problem with adultery and fornication? And everybody was, you know, it was a completely different response. Why? Well, the one is, hey, worry. Yeah, 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 I have an open Fornication? Not me, not me. They're, they're, they're ashamed. They're, they're embarrassed about it. Why was there such a difference? Of course, it has become popular for secular psychiatrists and psychologists to add to the notion that worry and many other sins are sickness. After all, they can map people's brain. And people that worry, you can see that there's certain things going on in their brain that aren't going on in the brain of another person. And you can give drugs to people, and then those things that happen in the worrying person's brain get, get shut down more. So it helps them not to worry because they've got a chemical problem. Well, maybe it's not a chemical problem. Maybe if you're lusting, there's things firing in your brain. And if you're worrying, there's things firing in your brain. If you're angry, there's things firing in your brain. Not because there's something wrong with your brain, but because there's something wrong with your heart. And your brain, your, your heart drives your brain instead of the other way around. So you're doing these things, these things are happening in your brain, and yeah, you can suppress them and so on, but the root of the problem is not here. It's here, so to speak. I mean, we use this figuratively, of course, when we speak of the heart, but in the, in the inner man and the soul. You see, the, the thing is, these doctors, psychiatrists and stuff, most of them, they don't have a category for sin. Not sin as rebellion against a personal God that needs to be repented of. If it's that, you have hope because you can repent and find his grace. But if it's sickness, then you have to go to the doctor and rely on medications and pills and therapy and different things like that. So they're left to find the root of worry and lots of other sins as a disorder in the brain instead of in a heart of sinful rebellion against God. We need to be honest for what it is. But you can see here in Matthew 6, that Jesus doesn't find the root of worry in a chemical imbalance in the brain. He finds the root of worry in two places, actually. First, Jesus shows that worry is rooted in placing too much value on what we eat and drink and wear. In other words, the things of this world. At the end of verse 25, he shows us what he has in mind when he asks, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It is clear that he is referring to food and clothing as examples of all that we need in this world. He's not just talking about extra desires. He's talking about things like food and clothing that we, we do need if we're going to live in this world, if we're going to survive in this world. We really do need them. But Jesus' point here is that even though you need them, they're not nearly as important as the eternal things. They're not worthy of worrying about. The things like knowing God, like the forgiveness of sins, like serving God, like obeying God, like walking with God, like loving your neighbor, those things are way more important than what you eat and what you wear and uh, such things. And when, you're, when you find anxious, worried people, what are they typically worried about? I mean, what are you typically worried about when you worry? 
Is it not about the things of this world? About food and clothing? Having enough for retirement? Having your physical safety? Are you safe? And even things like whether you will be accepted by others or whether you will do well on your midterms, maybe, or if people will like the supper that you prepared. Or, you know, and there are things like the worry that comes when you or your loved ones are diagnosed with cancer or with heart disease. Jesus says plainly, don't worry about your life. There are much more important things to concern yourself about. Again, like knowing God and walking with God. Things that will last forever. Seriously, if you should find out that you have cancer, or that your child does, or if you should run out of food, is that really a big deal compared with losing your own soul? It's not. It's not worth worrying about, because if you die of cancer or if your child dies of cancer, or of starvation, you'll just go to be with Christ in paradise. So it's not really something to worry about. So instead of worrying about it, you can just leave those things with the Lord. And that brings us to the second thing that Jesus shows us that worry is rooted in. Jesus says, secondly, that worry is rooted in a lack of trust in the Lord. You aren't able to cast your care on the Lord because you don't trust him. He's not reliable. That's what you think. He's not really going to take care of things in the right way. I've got to worry about it. That's really what you're saying. You need to face it square on. In verse 26, he talks about how God feeds the birds who do not store up their food. In verse 28, how he clothes the flowers with beauty, beautiful clothes. And you are much more important, he says, to your heavenly father than they are. So don't think that God is or don't you think that God is both able and also quite willing to provide for you as long as you're appointed to live on the earth? And when he stops providing for you or he brings an enemy or an assassin or whatever it might be or something that a car that knocks you down and kills you or whatever it is, then it's because it's your appointed time to die. So you don't need to worry about that. Jesus says it again and again. Do not worry, he says. Your heavenly Father knows what you need, and he will give you what you need to continue as long as he wants you to live, and in whatever level of prosperity or poverty he wants you to have. You have to leave it all with him. Your worry shows that you do not trust your heavenly Father, either his ability or his wisdom or his love. For you that he will do what is good for you you've got to take it over in your hands jesus sums up in verse 33 and addresses both of these roots he tells you to get your values right seek first the kingdom of god in his righteousness that is what is really important when you have an eye that is good and to trust your heavenly father all these things Things you need now will be added to you. God will provide you with your food and clothing through the means that he has appointed. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, lay up our food and use means and wisdom. But you leave this matter with him. And you concern yourself with seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Which includes, for us as human beings, we store our food. I mean, that's what people 
always done in, in the agrarian society. You, you get a harvest, you preserve it, you store it, you, you work hard to do that. We're not like the birds that don't store up. He's not saying we need to run around and just gather berries off the trees or something. No, that's not how he provides for us. But we don't need to worry. We fulfill our calling in laying up food for the winter or, or whatever kind of situation it is. And then we leave it with him. And we don't worry. We don't concern ourselves. We, we concern ourselves with his kingdom and righteousness. Jesus shows in verse 25 through 34 that worry is unhelpful, ungodly, and burdensome to us. It can be burdensome to other people too, your worry. But it's unhelpful because it does not do you any good. I think some people are afraid not to worry sometimes. Of course, there are fools that spend all their money on beer and games and then they don't have enough for food. You know, they spend their whole paycheck <laughs> as soon as they get it. And they aren't worried because they're not worried. Indeed, they're not worried about how they're going to pay their bills later on. You know, they just want to have fun now. But it's not so much that these people ought to worry as it is that they ought to obey God by working and being responsible to provide for themselves and by using his gifts in ways that are pleasing to him instead of ways that are not pleasing to him, which would include responsibly storing up, using their paycheck to provide for their needs and planning that out over the month. There is no need to worry, though. It does not help. In verse 27, Jesus says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? That's 18 inches. That's, that's a good little bit, isn't it? Can, can you... You know, like, like me, I'm kind of short. So if I, if I had worried more, maybe I would be taller now. You know, that, that might be a, a foot and a half taller. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be great? I should have worried. Worry does not add to your bank account. It doesn't add to your food supply. It doesn't make your garden grow. Now, it might get you off the couch to go and work when you need to. But worry should not be the thing that gets you off the couch, gets you moving, so much as a desire to please God gets you moving to fulfill your calling. Love for God and love for your neighbor is what should move you rather than worry. Worry has no benefit, no good place. Jesus shows that worry about our earthly things is not only unhelpful, it is also ungodly. He says it's what the Gentiles do who do not trust God. We talked about trusting God before. In verse 31 and 32, he says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. The Gentiles who don't know God. He says, For your heavenly Father, the one you know, knows that you need all these things. Gentiles are not reconciled to God. They deny God. So of course they're going to worry about these things. Because it all stops with them. It all depends on them. But you have a heavenly father in whose hands you can commit your life. Incidentally, the Gentiles often do find other things to lean on, don't they? Maybe on the, the government or on their, you know, their new job that they got or something. They, they find all kinds of things to, to rely on. But your heavenly father is the one into whose hands you can commit your life safely. You insult him when you do not trust him, when you act like he doesn't care 
or as if he's unable to provide, or as if he is unwise and will not do what is best concerning you. It's ungodly, ungodly to worry. And finally, Jesus shows that it is burdensome to you to worry. You have the troubles of each day that God has given you, so why torment yourself and pile burdens on and carry burdens that were meant for tomorrow? Today's burdens, or tomorrow's burdens, to carry them today. In verse 34, he says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You need all the strength that you have to pursue God in his kingdom today. If you're weighed down with care about your daily bread, you're draining your energy that that might have been devoted to the things of the Lord. So you see that it all comes down to covetousness. If you have decided that you must have certain things in this world, you will labor inordinately to make sure that you get those things. You'll be misdirected and you will worry about losing those things or about not having the ability to obtain them. It is all because you are full of covetousness that you worry. Instead of putting the matter in God's hands, you have set yourself up to decide how much you ought to have and how things must go. They have to go like this, you say. And then you are preoccupied with the world and neglectful of the pursuit of God's kingdom. You're distracted by chasing the wrong things and are distracted by your worry. You remember in the parable of the sower, the seed that was in the thorny ground, they were concerned about the, they, they were led astray by the deceitfulness of riches and the concern for other things. You're distracted by chasing the wrong things and distracted by your worry. Jesus is telling you to serve God and leave it with him to provide what he wills for you. Stop pursuing your covetous desires and start walking with the Lord. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things of this world will be added to you as God wills. Can't you just leave it with him? No. You can't? Yeah, it's not so easy, is it? Then bring your covetousness to him. That makes all the difference. Confess your worry as sin instead of justifying it and making excuses about it. If you try to justify yourself, you will not succeed. Jesus is the one who, is ju- who justifies sinners. If you come to him as a sinner to be justified by him, then you will prosper and flourish. Look to him for the forgiveness of this sin instead of denying it as sin. And ask him to deliver you. He delivers us when we repent instead of making excuses. To go back to the Song of Solomon, how do we come out of the wilderness? Do we come out of the wilderness by saying that we haven't really done anything wrong? No. We come out of the wilderness by leaning on the beloved. He's the one who saves us and delivers us 
from sinful desires as well as sinful actions. Please stand and let's ask him to do just that. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that we are sinners and that we come short of your glory in a multitude of ways. And Father, our, our society, we, we have sins that are sort of acceptable and we have sins that are not at all acceptable and we don't really have a biblical understanding of these things. We see that, that Jesus speaks about worry and is spoken about in many places in the Bible and tells us that we should trust you and such and, and, and we don't look at worry as a sin. But we see something else like adultery and, well, even today in our society, people don't often refer to that as a sin either. But, of course, it certainly is. Child molesting, most people think that's a sin today. We, we have a very different way of looking at these things, and we pray, Lord, that we would bring your word to bear upon us. Father, when we do, we see that there is covetousness in us. There is an inordinate love of the things of the world. I mean, really, we could love the things of the world even more if we receive them, if they're sanctified by the word of God in prayer. But we tend to have them independently of, of your will without really giving it over to you, trusting you in prayer to give us what is good and leaving it with you with a quiet spirit that trusts the Lord and that's very precious in your sight. We also have the problem of our going, want, wanting things even when we have to trample on boundaries and maybe cheat or steal or lie or something. Father, we pray then that you would help us and that you would deliver us. And Father, that we would have a real burning passion, desire to know you, to walk with you, to be holy as you're holy, that we would lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and where thieves won't break in and steal. Father, we thank you that there's a, we worry about the banks today and what's going to happen to our currency and all this kind of thing. Well, there's a, there's a place where we can put treasure that, that nobody can touch. And we thank you, Lord, that you have told us where that is. And we pray that we would lay up treasure there. Father, we can't do this on our own. Lord, we do need to lean on Jesus. That's the solution. It's not to try harder. It's not to just force and work, but, but it's, to come, it's to come and lean on you. We look to you, Lord. Change us. Help us to be hungry and thirsty for communion with you that will, will transform us, Lord. This is what we need. So please, Father, work in us. Use the things that we've looked at today to, to help, help us to live for your glory. Help us to have an eye, an eye that discerns what is good and distinguishes it from what is bad. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive with assurance the blessing of our Lord, the one that we can safely trust. And now, may the Lord supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.